right, well, we've been talking about the beautiful life as articulated in this book of James. James, as we know, is the brother of Jesus, and he has been outlining the invitation of how to live a life that is truly deep and rich and meaningful, a genuinely beautiful life. And he's talked about this in various ways. He's talked about being stronger through suffering. Uh, that is actually possible. First of all, suffering is a promise that Jesus made. In this world, you will have trouble, right? But I've overcome the world, so he wants us stronger through suffering. James articulates that in his book. Uh, he calls us to help people in need. James is called James the Just. He gives his life to the poor. He actually takes a vow of poverty and abstinence in order to focus on his ministry to the poor. Uh, James talks about uh, treating people with equal respect, showing no partiality, the way God treats us without, parti uh, without uh, partiality, treat other people in the same way, regardless of economics and race. He calls us to encourage others with words, not to tear people down with words, but to encourage us. And then last week we talked about seeking wisdom from above. There's a heavenly wisdom that is imparted to us, and if we seek that, God's Word promises, we will find it. He will give us the wisdom to know how to make decisions in life and have an impact in life that truly leaves a beautiful legacy. All right, so here we are now in James chapter 4. We're going to leak into chapter 5, and this is where things get a little bit tough. This is where James kind of flips a switch and he becomes an angry preacher. Um, you know these angry preachers, kind of like this guy right here? You know, preachers be like that guy. Uh, I love memes, by the way. I live on memes and, and jiffies and, you know, the whole deal, emoticons. That's just my thing. I rarely use words. It's all memes, jiffies, and emoticons. Um, if you get words from me and a text, something's deeply wrong. Okay. So um, there are uh, angry preachers, and, you know, I don't consider myself an angry preacher. I never quite, you know, get this bad, but sometimes you're so passionate about, passionate about something, the words just come out very, very strongly, and that is exactly what we're dealing with in James chapters 4 and 5. I'll just give you a little taste, and by the way, this is the most mild of the, um, of, of the, of the anger here. He says this, wash your hands, you sinners. How's that for a, a start of a sermon? Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. That, that sucker preaches. That is angry, pulpit-pounding, you know, preaching. That is mad pastor man who shows up in James chapter 4 and 5. Now, um, all of us get angry. Is that a fair statement? Every single one of us gets angry about something, and James is really mad about something. We'll find out what it is, is in a minute. But when I get angry, it's usually because my plans and my way just um, don't become reality. I was driving home from the men's retreat yesterday, which, by the way, was a great retreat, about 100 guys up there just enjoying their time with each other, and uh, it's a great setting up there, a bunch of great speakers. They actually saw a great Christian movie. Can you imagine there, there's a great Christian movie that has been made? I, I know, seriously, it's totally surprising. It's called The Case for Christ. It hits theaters on April the 7th, and uh, it's a wonderful movie, faith-building movie, and uh, so they saw that as a preview, sneak peek yesterday morning, and then I had to come down the hill. Uh, my son had a game, and I had to do a little, you know, final touches on this awesome sermon here. And so I had to get, <laughs> get down the hill. And, uh, and whenever I, I go anywhere, it doesn't matter if it's across town, I let Google tell me exactly what to do. I don't possess a mind of my own. I have given my entire life over to Google to, to run it. I trust her uh, to, to lead my life. So I put in my home address at the men's retreat and pressed route, and then I'm done. I turn on the, off the brain, and this wonderful Google voice tells me exactly where to go. So she told me to take some side roads, not to take the freeways, take the side roads. It's a Saturday uh, in Southern California, which means the traffic is only horrible 
not Armageddon like it is Monday through Friday. So still, I was grateful that Google led me um, off the freeways and, and down some windy hills through Redlands and all that stuff. And so I just did what I normally do, totally trust my life to uh, Google. She's my other woman, by the way. My wife knows it. I'm very honest about it. Um, she gets totally frustrated with me because, you know, she's got a good sense of direction and, she, oh, I know we should go this way. No, Google says the other way and that's the end of the story. So I just follow, uh, you know, Google's directions and go down this windy road and I can see the 60 freeway where I'm supposed to get on. And um, about a mile before the 60 freeway, giant road signs that say road closed. They're doing some construction. I don't know what happened. Roads got washed out or something. But Google failed me. Like never before, Google failed me. There's a reason why Google spent $4 billion acquiring the Waze app. You know the Waze app? It's this beautiful, perfect melding of social media traffic with Google uh, traffic, Google Maps, and it's supposed to make everything right and perfect in the world. It failed me this time. So I had to go backwards about 15 minutes back to the 10 freeway, and I thought, okay, my brain was saying, I'm getting on the 10, and I'm going to go east, Beaumont, Hemet, home, no problem, kind of no uh, how long that's going to take, but Google said, no, you're going to go west. And again, my, my, my faith and trust is in Google. And so I start going west. I go west for about 10 miles, 15 miles, hit the 215 freeway, but the interchange to the 215 south is closed. She failed me again. Now I'm hitting bumper-to-bumper traffic on the 10. Saturday morning, it takes another about half an hour to wind through the city streets to get back on the 215. By the time I get down to Marietta, traffic is socked. I lose another half an hour getting home. Google promised me, made a vow to me when I was leaving the men's retreat, it would be an hour and eight minutes. It was two hours and 28 minutes to get home on a Saturday mid-morning. This is frustrating. Now, I, when I get mad, I don't blow up. I never raise my voice. I kept all my fingers to myself, right? Um, I behaved myself externally, but on the inside, I am seething. Why? Because I get angry when I don't get my way, right? I deserve to get my way all the time, don't I? <laughs> I mean, all my opinions are correct, well thought out, right? Uh, my schedule should work out the way I planned. All my expectations should be met, but it just doesn't work out that way all the time. And when I don't get my way and when my expectations aren't met and when my schedule doesn't work out, I tend to get a little angry. When I don't get my way, I tend to get a little angry. Now, this is what James says in James 4.1. He talks about kind of anger and fighting and striving, and he says there's a source behind that. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Our base desire is to get what we want. Our base desire is to get our way. I guarantee you, virtually every fight that you get in with somebody is based on the reality that somebody didn't get their way. Um, when was the last time you fought? Some of you are saying, okay, maybe on your way here, right? Uh, spouses, kids, the whole deal. I mean, there's disconnects everywhere. When was the last time you fought? I will guarantee, I'll give you a dollar after the service that your last fight um, uh, was about somebody not getting their way. And so you had to punish the other person because you didn't get your way and, and then they punish you back and then here we go and then now you're fighting. Fighting and quarrels among us happen because we don't get our way. But James is leading us to a, a, a version of anger that's not quite exactly like that. James is getting mad not because he didn't get his way but because he is defending the very people who have the heart of God. In fact, James' anger could be pointed back to his brother Jesus' anger. Jesus' anger was fierce. In fact, you might recall a few times in the New Testament in the Gospels where Jesus is absolutely, you could say, arguably, he's, he's having a temper tantrum. I mean, he is, he is losing it, and he's, he's 
you know, uh, lifting up tables, tossing tables, throwing money around. He takes a whip and he's driving out human beings and animals out of the temple, which at the time had about a quarter million people in it from all over the world during the Passover feast. This is Jesus losing it here. Now, James does the same thing in James 4 and 5. James is losing it. He is angry. Now, neither Jesus nor James um, had outbursts of anger because they weren't getting their way. They had outbursts of anger because they were defending the people that, that have God's heart, the poor and the outcast and the marginalized. These are the people James and Jesus are defending with their angry words. James was protecting the poor, the powerless, the voiceless, the marginalized, the forgotten, and the oppressed. If you want to rile up the anger of the Lord, start harassing the people who have his heart. Start harassing the poor. Start harassing the immigrant, the refugee, the voiceless, the, the sick, the mentally ill. If we start oppressing and, and marginalizing the people who God has a very special place in his heart for, then the anger of God will come to the surface. And that is exactly what we see in Jesus. As Jesus is depend, defending poor people who are getting ripped off in the temple in the name of God, and here James is defending poor people, marginalized people, voiceless people, powerless people, who are oppressed pr primarily by the wealthy among us. Now I want to set the stage a little bit. This book, the book of James, is arguably the oldest book of the New Testament. It was written roughly 10 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we'll celebrate here in a few weeks. Jesus rose again from the dead in the very city he was crucified in. And he lived in Jerusalem, in and around Jerusalem, for about six weeks. And so about a quarter of the city ends up following Jesus Christ. If they saw him crucified, then they see him around town raised from the dead. They're going to follow him. I think we're following Jesus. <laughs> he rose from the dead. A quarter of the city is following Jesus. Now, the very people who had Jesus crucified were not very thrilled that a quarter of the city is now following Jesus Christ. And so they put down some heavy persecution upon the church right away. In fact, one of the early church leaders, you read about it in the book of Acts, Stephen, he was assaulted in the city streets, thrown into a pit, and rocks were thrown at him until he was dead. This, this is what happened in the early church. And from that time on, there was a heavy persecution of the church in Jerusalem. So much so, they were driven out of their homes, driven out of their city. It's called the Jewish diaspora, Christians who were dispersed from Jerusalem all throughout the Roman Empire. They had no home. They were refugees just trying to, to look for survival. They were members of their family who have been uh, arrested, beaten, tortured, even killed. They are very poor. They are suffering the effects of racism. Here they are, Jewish people all throughout the Roman Empire. So they're suffering racism. They're suffering injustice, for example, not getting paid what they were promised to be paid. A rich, say, Roman citizen would say, hey, I want you to work for me for two weeks. They'd work the two weeks, then not pay him. What are you going to do about it? I'm rich and powerful and a Roman citizen, and, and you're a, a migrant Jew. What are you going to do about it? Uh, sometimes they would have to take out loans at high interest just to feed their family. And if they were one day late on their payments, uh, the, the Roman authorities would take their property, including their home, including their farms. They were victims of horrific oppression. And the oppression they endured came primarily from the more wealthy class of the Roman citizenry. And, and, and the Roman citizenry who were very wealthy were known for mistreating people, especially if they weren't Romans. They used their power, they used their wealth to oppress the poor, specifically the poor migrant. But James also notices, and we discussed this when we were studying James chapter 2, 
that this oppression was taking place not just from the outside in, but from within their own Christian churches. And we uh, read about this a couple of weeks ago where rich people would come into their churches and rich people would get the best seats in the house and poor people were put in the back and put on the floor. And James says, we will have no part of this. There can be no partiality, especially when rich people are abusing the poor because poor people and sick people and disenfranchised people, they have God's heart in a very, very unique way and God will not and cannot tolerate them being further oppressed. And of course, James is called James the Just. James is the one, the apostle, who gave his life to care for the poor. He took a vow of poverty to feel what they feel and live how they live. He wore old clothes, didn't wash. I mean, we told you the story several weeks ago, right? He was very serious about making sure that he lived as the poorest among them so he could feel what they feel and empathize with their plight. So he could not and would not tolerate poor people, disenfranchised people from being further oppressed. So he goes off on them. He goes off. You want to read some more anger? James chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people. That's a tough way to start. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. The corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. That's some poetic preaching right there. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. That is tough stuff. Now, James may or may not be writing to specific rich people within the congregation um, a lot of people assume, and I, I agree with this, that James is just talking about rich people who oppress the poor in general. So he, he's talking to kind of a caricature of rich people who oppress poor people, and he's heaping judgment upon them because, again, the poor and disenfranchised have God's heart very uniquely. So if somebody uses their earthly power and their earthly wealth to further abuse them, God's anger is going to rise up, and James is simply expressing God's anger towards rich people who oppress Poor people. Now, we might be able to look at this passage and say, okay, well, you know, those rich people, yeah, James, go get them, right? Yeah, Jesus, have at it, right? Let your anger pour out on them. And we might have an image in our own minds of, of a rich person who is, say, taking advantage of poor people. You may have a very specific person in mind of a rich person who has taken advantage of poor people. And, and it's easy to point to them and say, yeah, they're the problem. But James goes on to say that there is a symptom of this kind of person that really has nothing to do with how much money we have, but perhaps how we spend what we have. So Jesus gives a symptom of somebody who is, really has a heart that's not aligned with the heart of God. Here's what he says in James 4.3. He says, you spend what you get on your pleasures. This is the symptom of somebody whose heart is selfish and somebody whose heart may not be oppressing poor people, but maybe forgetting the plight of the poor because we spend everything we get on ourselves. Now, a rich person can spend everything they get on themselves, and we can point the finger at them, but how about a middle-class person who spends all they get on themselves? How about those folks? That's probably most of us here, middle class. How about, um, you know, say poor people who spend everything they have on themselves? Now, that's kind of understandable. You know, you got to eat. But is there any generosity in there? So I think what James is calling out here is not just the position of being rich, 
but it's a heart condition that says, you know what, if we are self-focused, if we are focused on our own desires and our own way and, and spending everything we get on ourselves, that's the heart problem. Not that you're rich, but that we have a heart that's not aligned with the heart of God, which is for the poor and for the disenfranchised. And so in this respect, all of us can take a look at our own lives and our own greed, our own pride, and and the hoarding of wealth for ourselves, whether we are rich, middle class, or or, uh, um, poor. If we're spending all we have on ourselves, we've got to take a look at our own heart. We've got to take a look at our own heart. The word that is used here uh, for desire is hedonism, that we spend all we have on our desires and our pleasure. The word is hedonai, which is where we get the word hedonism. And hedonism is simply a devotion to pleasure as the primary value of life. Now, we could point to the Roman Empire and their hedonism, and, and believe me, that's a party. That's totally disgusting. You point to, um, to Roman hedonism, all the wealth of the Western world is theirs. They had conquered the entire Western world, and they were using all of the world's power and wealth to feed their own pleasures in absolutely disgusting ways by uh, how they were greedy and, and, and bought just ridiculous things for themselves and how they hoarded their wealth and how they mistreated poor people and, and took slaves and, and how they mistreated immigrants and refugees among them. Uh, we could point to the absolutely disgusting way they lived, just pursuing every grotesque sexual pleasure. Now, it's not nearly as bad in America today as it was in the Roman Empire. I think we're working on it, right? We're, <laughs> we're working on it. But it's not nearly as bad as it was in the Roman Empire. But still, the heart of the hedonist, whether it's as disgusting and grotesque as the Roman Empire was, or whether it's just this, this idea that we put our attention largely on ourselves and spend our resources largely on ourselves, that really is the same heart problem. So we've got to take a look at that. Now, let me show you how this plays out in charitable giving. And we talked about this a few months ago in just briefly But here's a reality that is worth taking a look at in the context of James 4 and 5 regarding the rich. U.S. poor and middle class gives more to charity, but wealthy pull back. Study after study has indicated that in the last 10 years, the rich have gotten richer. You've heard of that before. The rich have gotten richer, yet they have pulled back their charitable giving. That makes sense to anybody here? The average rich person gives away 1.3% of their income to charity. 1.3%. That doesn't make any sense to me. But middle class and poor people, their incomes haven't risen. In fact, they've pulled, their incomes have pulled back a little bit. They have given more in the last 10 years. The average middle class and poor person gives 3.5% of their income to charity, almost triple the percentage that rich people give. I mean, that's just confounding to me. It's so confounding, there is a field of study on this. And uh, this is done by Paul Piff uh, from UC Berkeley. He's a psychologist, and he put a lot of energy and attention to figuring out why rich people don't give very much in charity. And here are some of his conclusions. He says this, The personal drive to accumulate wealth may be inconsistent with the idea of communal support. Now, he gets into this in some detail. He says this, "If, If you're a selfish person and you are wired as an entrepreneur, you might be very good and very motivated to earn money for yourself. Does that make sense? If you're selfish already, and you're a a good entrepreneurial mind, you might gain a lot of wealth. Now, does gaining wealth change the fact that you might have been a selfish person to begin with? Not at all. It just means now you're a wealthy, selfish person. So he's really come to the conclusion that a lot of wealthy people were selfish from the beginning with an entrepreneurial spirit, made a lot of money for themselves. Now they're just rich, selfish people. 
He goes on to say this. Now, he uses a naughty word here, but I blanked out the naughty word, but you can guess. The rich are more likely to prioritize their own self-interest above the interests of other people, more likely to exhibit characteristics of we would call a blank. And it's a compound cuss word, but I'll just let you decide what that might be. We'll just say jerk. It's church, right? You're welcome. So we'll just say jerk. He says there's this phenomenon where, um, you know, if you're a jerk to begin with, with no money, then you make a lot of money, you're still a jerk, right? That's not very scientific, but that's the conclusions he's coming up with time and time again as he's analyzing why wealthy people don't give as much as middle class or poor people. If they are selfish to begin with, now they're rich selfish people. If they're a jerk to begin with, now they're rich jerks. And money doesn't solve that. In fact, in his research, money makes it worse. That's why James says your, your wealth is corroding you and eating your flesh like fire. In other words, you're becoming less of a human being because this wealth corrupts. Now, I want to be really, really clear here. Is it wrong to be entrepreneurial? Is it wrong to be successful? You can answer boldly. These aren't trick questions. Is it wrong to make a lot of money? No. Is it wrong to spend some of that money, even a lot of that money, on yourself and houses and stuff and cars? None of that's wrong. In fact, uh, uh, in uh, the book uh, um, Ecclesiastes, which is a, a book written from arguably one of the richest men who has ever lived, he says, hey, it's okay to spend our resources on things that are nice and pleasurable. That's not a problem as long as we're not ignoring the people who have God's heart uniquely as long as we are very generous. Now, I've got some well-off friends. I have a, a lot of people who are struggling who are friends and middle-class people who are friends, and I know a few wealthy people who are friends. And I'm telling you, those wealthy people are among the most generous people I have ever met, and they are not giving 1.3% of their income to charity. They are generously using their resources towards the people who have the heart of God uniquely, and they are moving mountains. Wealthy people who are generous can move mountains I did a quick uh, study of the top 50 philanthropists in the world. So these are the top 50 most generous people in the world. And of course, they are, they're wealthy, and they're giving billions of dollars away. One of these gentlemen in particular has given away $11 billion and is now worth $1.5 million. He's called the king of philanthropy. He's given away $11 billion, and he's worth $1.5 million. And it is absolute, absolutely shocking people. You have made $11 billion, and you've given almost all of it away, and you're left with only a million and a half dollars? How could you do that? And he says, a million and a half dollars is a lot of money. <laughs> you don't need to be sorry for me. He says, I'm fine, and my family is fine, right? A million and a half dollars. Hey, I'm able to pay my bills, and, and my family will have a little bit of inheritance. We have no problem. He's made $11 billion. He's given almost all of it away because he has just decided that he's not going to be clinging on with a tight fist to stuff and to things. To, to do what? To, to build a house that's not 4,000 square feet, but 10,000 square feet? Well, if you have 10,000, why not go to 30,000? I mean, what is the advantage of that? Really, what is the gain truly other than trying to solve some insecurity about ourselves that needs to keep going bigger and better and newer and nicer, right? A lot of that is just fueled by insecurity. So James is encouraging us to separate ourselves from this materialism, uh, to not uh, have to seek our way and our will and impose that on other people, and to not use the wealth that we have, whether it's a lot or a little, on only ourselves. There's a different way to live. 
And James says, if we, if we just are always focusing on ourselves and always using our resources only on ourselves, he says it's like adultery. It's like committing adultery. So his, his anger goes on. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, this is a powerful and a little bit of a complex line of thinking here. James is saying if, if we are focusing on ourselves and our own desires, our own way, hedonai, hedonism, if we are using all of our resources that we have on ourselves, then we have a heart that is cheating on God. This is what James is saying. He's really trying to drive a point home here. We have a heart that's cheating on God. God wants our heart. The Bible says God's a jealous God. Here, James says he's an envious God. He wants our heart. Now, why is God jealous and envious of our heart? Is it because God is insecure and he needs us to praise him? He needs us to adore him? He needs us to give him praise? No, he doesn't need any of that stuff. God does not lack anything. God does not want. God is totally secure in and of himself. He needs nothing to make him feel better about himself. He doesn't need our praise, doesn't need our adoration, but what God, he doesn't need our heart, but what God knows is that if our heart belongs to him, then we will be free to live a beautiful life. He wants us to live a beautiful life, a meaningful life, a rich life, a profound life, a life that is bigger and better than just ourselves. But if all of our thoughts and desires go this way and all of our resources go this way, we live very small lives just in this one little area right here, me, me, me. It's a small life. It's a dull life. It's a dark life. It's an ugly life. And when we're dead, we turn to dust and there's nothing left. God wants us to live a better life, a more beautiful life, a life of generosity that has the life of God pour into us and pour out to others. Now we have an impact. Now our life is beautiful. Now our life really matters because we are giving our attention not just to ourselves but to others and blessing others and making their lives better and happier and more full. The resources that we have, we're giving a little bit of that away, right? We may not give... 99.9% .9 of it away, like this philanthropist I talk about, but we're given a little bit away to, to be generous. And, and when we use the resources that we have by God's providence and we invest them into the things that are the cause of Christ, particularly matters of helping the poor and the needy among us, our life becomes more rich, more power, more beautiful, and we leave an incredible legacy. God says it's kind of like adultery. If everything is heading in your direction, it's sort of like you're cheating on a spouse. You're giving up unconditional love for a short-term feel-good fling. And so what God is saying is if you're using all of your resources on yourself and all of your desires on yourself, it's just a short, good, feel-good fling on yourself, right? Instead of embracing and living out this rich and deep unconditional love that God has for us. So we're going to close our time with just a couple of thoughts about how we can live largely free from selfishness and greed. And we'll spend our whole life kind of freeing ourselves from selfishness and greed by God's grace, by God's power, by God's spirit, to leave behind sort of the materialism, leave behind, leave behind the pride that pours into us and the, and the resourcing pouring, poured only into us. How can we be largely free from that? Just a couple of things. Number one, get more informed and involved with helping people in need. More informed and more involved with helping people in need. I've noticed recently, and it could just be that I'm waking up to some realities here, that people live 
in small worlds, even though we're connected to the whole world with social media. We live in small worlds, our Facebook world, our social media world, our friends at work, our friends in the neighborhood. Even though we're connected to the whole world, sometimes we still live in very small social media bubbles or small interpersonal bubbles. Let me give you an example. Um, How many of you, don't raise your hand, don't nod your head, how many of you know what's going on in Mosul right at this very minute? How many of you know what's going on? Don't answer. I'm asking a question awkwardly without asking you to answer. Mosul is the center of hell right now. Two million people in this town that was taken over by ISIS in northern Iraq. They have been living in hell for about three years right now. Well, the Iraqi army got some courage, some boldness, a coalition behind them, including U.S.-backed forces, and they have taken most of Mosul. There is a quarter, a quadrant of the city that has yet to be liberated. And this is the stronghold of ISIS. ISIS is using families as shields, women and children as shields. There are shells going, mortars going back and forth. There's snipers just mowing down people. There are 650,000 people left in that final quadrant of Mosul. Their cities are in rubble. Every family has lost somebody in their family to war and just victims of the chaos of war. Their houses are in rubble. They have nowhere to go, but they've got to escape this quadrant, and they're not allowed. If they manage to escape, they escape to nothing. There is nothing left. There is no shelter, so they try to put together a couple of rocks to to provide shelter. They try to find a blanket or a tarp so their kids can sleep under that. Add to that, it is pouring rain down there, and when it pours rain in the desert, it just turns to garbage and mud. That's their life right now. And these are mothers who are trying to just keep their children alive. There's no food, there's no water, there's no safety, there's no civilization, no protection. And they are losing their family members by the thousands. We've got to get more informed in this. Because we live in these small social media bubbles, we tend to want to hang out with people who are just like us who are, let's say, as comfortable as us, have our same kind of lifestyle, our same sort of circumstances in life, and we like to stay connected to that. It's an insulated sort of a bubble. Even though we're connected to the whole world, we still form insulated little bubbles that are safe for us, that feel good for us. Now, I understand that. I absolutely understand that. I understand the need to to sort of not feel the pain of the world, but if we don't feel the pain of the world, my fear is that our heart will be unaligned with the heart of God because God's heart is for those people. God's heart is uniquely for people who suffer and who lose their kids and who are hungry and naked and without shelter. God's heart is uniquely for them. And if his people's hearts are not focused on the hell in the world, but are focused on trying to keep our lives insular and safe, I think we're just, we're just not in touch quite with God's heart. So I want to encourage us to force ourselves to at the very least feel the pain that's going on in this world and empathize with that pain. If you're a mother or father who's, it's your job to protect your kids, get to know mothers and fathers across the other side of the world who cannot protect their kids and feel what that might feel like, empathize with the pain of the world. And if we do that, and if our heart starts to break for people who are broken, then we are gonna start aligning our heart, our soul, our emotions with the heart and soul and the emotion of God himself. And then pray for those people. Spend time in prayer. And some of you might ask, well, what's the point of prayer? Does does prayer, you know, change things? And I'm not a big prayer changes things kind of a guy. But here is what I am in prayer. Prayer aligns our heart with the heart of God. 
That is, I think, the primary focus of prayer. It aligns our heart with the heart of God. So if we pray for these refugees in Mosul and, and we pray for the refugees that have come out of Syria, we pray for the people who are homeless and in poverty and countryless. If we pray for them, our heart is aligning with the heart of God, and that is powerful. Not only does our prayer life align our heart with the heart of God, but it aligns our heart with people who are suffering. And that means everything to people who are suffering. A lot of my job and responsibilities around here are to walk alongside of people who are suffering. And I'm telling you, it means so much to them to know that there are people who are feeling what they're feeling and praying for them. They may never meet the people that are praying for them, but it means so much to people for them to know that there are, are folks who they don't even know who are mourning with them, grieving with them, crying with them, who they will never meet. There's an alignment of our heart with the heart of God and an alignment of our heart with the heart of people who suffer. So get to know what's going on. Pray for them to align our hearts and then, and then do something to try to meet a need. Do something to meet a need. And we might think, okay, the, the folks in the, in the Middle East, I, there's not much I can do. I, I would caution you on that. Empathizing and, and prayer is a, a huge part of that, but maybe there is something you can do. Give a, give a few bucks to relief agencies who are out there. And you might not meet the person that your dollars you know, help your dollar's going to a big bucket, and that big bucket goes to a big bucket, and things happen. But every dollar that we give to humanitarian efforts makes a difference. Feeds somebody, clothes somebody, shelters somebody, gives a child fresh water, saves a life. Get involved somehow. Maybe you can be an advocate in your small group or in your ministry team, and maybe there's something God's putting on your heart, some international crisis issue, and rally people. Rally your friends. Do something good. And this isn't just locally, it's about, or globally, it's locally as well. There's a lot of need, even right here in the Disneyland of Temecula Marietta Valley. There's a lot of people who are in need, who are struggling in their families, struggling with grief, struggling emotionally, struggling with anxieties and depressions, uh, hopelessness, with, with, with disorders, feeling totally alone. There's a homeless population that's quite large here in our valley. There's a homeless crisis in our country, and our country is doing very poorly in navigating that crisis. There are limits of the Constitution, and there's limits of resourcing and limits of willingness, but there are homeless folks, about 100 of them, right in our own uh, valley. And these are human beings made in the image of God. So as it's easy to discount the Middle East and you know, Muslims and war and whatever else we can just easily discount, let's not do that. Let's not discount the people locally here in town. You know, for example, if you come across a homeless people and you just know, maybe you've run into them before, they're mentally ill, our tendency is to avoid that. It's way too uncomfortable, right? So we just kind of walk around and avoid them. And I'm telling you, just get in the habit of saying to every homeless person you come across in town, hey, how you doing today? Good to see you. Just start paying attention to them. Humanize them. Let's build caring connections with them. And it may not, you know, buy them something to eat. Do not give them money. Buy them something to eat, Right? Just as a gesture of kindness, look them in the eye, ask them questions. And if they're, if they're mentally ill, still be kind to them, right? Mentally ill, especially mentally ill homeless people probably have not been treated kindly for years or decades. And if we just treat them kindly, listen to their who knows what story, right? And just treat them like human beings, what an incredible blessing I think that would be. 
And then we're working really hard. We know just about every homeless person here in town. We operate the Temecula Pantry and the Rescue Mission. We know these people, right? We know their stories. A bunch of them are mentally ill, and we're working now with the city of Temecula and the county of Riverside and, and doctors in the area to say, can we provide mental health to these people and some medications for them? Some people are one lithium pill a, a day away from functioning, but there's got to be love and a system around those folks to help them out. Uh, there's a lot of people, probably, I'm just guessing, 75, 85% of the homeless population are drug addicted. That's why you don't give them money. They're drug addicted. Alcohol, uh, meth, heroin, and they are slowly killing themselves. And why are they doing that? Who knows? Every, every story is unique. But these are human beings made in the image of God. God never gives up on them. We should not give up on them. And we've got to try to find ways. I talked to a person this morning, homeless person to make a this morning, getting off a of heroin five days clean. Okay, this is the spot for you. Come and we'll wrap our arms around you and we will love you and we will walk with you in this story and they'll celebrate recovery for you on Thursday night. Let's walk this journey together. Let's never give up on these folks. Let's find ways, let's find solutions. And a lot of this stuff is, doesn't have immediate re uh, reward. Um, a lot of these people just aren't, you know, delivered in an instant, right? That's not reality. The reality is they make a commitment and fail and make a commitment and fail maybe 12, 13, 14, 25 times. Took my dad at least a couple of dozen times to commit to stop drinking before. Just who knows, for whatever reason, he stopped drinking. And our family is restored, and my mom and dad are here in church, and they're doing very, very well. Let's never give up on people. Let's feel their pain. Let's get to know their story. Let's empathize with them. Let's build some relationships where we can, and let's do something about these problems. And then finally, let's give more generously. You might have known this was coming, but the way it goes is pretty simple. It takes resourcing. Fixing the world's problems take resources. That's why James is focusing on the rich a lot, because in this context, in first century Roman Empire, the rich people were abusing poor people so they could get richer and keep poor people poorer. That's the reality of the first century uh, church. The reality that God wants is for rich people, and a lot of us could be classified as that. Globally speaking, most of us in here are rich. You've got running water, flushing toilets, a roof over your head, and three meals a day. Globally, you are wealthy, right? So let's have a, a, a global perspective and say, God, thank you that you have given me so much wealth. I want to do something significant. And I'm not going to give you any religious systems on how to give or where to give. That is entirely up to you, and I want God to speak to your life in a unique way. But I'll tell you, early on in my marriage, especially when we had um, three kids in diapers and uh, just one very low income, we were struggling, and we wanted to give more, and we, get, we gave what we could, but we made a commitment to each other, my wife and I, that we would just give a little more every year, just a little more every year, and we would reach our goal. And once we reached our goal, a little more every year, a little more every year, and we want to keep giving more every year for the rest of our lives. And there's no system around that. I'm not going to demean you and give you a number or a percentage or tell you where to give, but what I do know is that God wants to use our wealth, as much or as little as you think you have, to invest outside yourself, to align your heart, and to advance the cause of Christ, particularly to the poor and to the disenfranchised. Give a little more generously. Jesus said something pretty interesting. It was kind of totally reverse of logic in Matthew 6, 21. Jesus oftentimes says reverse things to kind of correct our reversal of things. So here's what Jesus says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, normally we might think, well, we will give where our heart already is. So, for example, if you are a real proponent of, of 
child's, uh, children's health, you might give to St. Jude's. You know, it's a very worthy cause and your heart might be there already so your treasure goes. Jesus says, in the context of helping the poor, give first and your heart will follow. Jesus is saying, just start resourcing where the heart of God is. Just start doing it. It could be just a little at first and then have goals, you know, year after year, but just start resourcing where the heart of God is. And Jesus says, your, tre- your, your heart will follow your treasure. Invest first and your heart follows. Uh, a bunch of years ago, I started buying just a few Apple stocks, right? Just wherever I could to buy some Apple stocks. Believe me, my heart went to Apple Incorporated real fast, right? Where we invest our treasure, our hard-earned treasure, our heart tends to go. So Jesus is saying, and James is absolutely implying, rich folks, people who have, start giving generously and your heart will follow. Your heart will be aligned with the heart of God. If, if we are selfish in our priorities and desires and we're, if we're selfish in our resources, essentially what we are is materialistic. Materialism, that is for us only. And uh, we'll close with this statement here. And this is an absolute law that cannot be refuted. It's a law of materialism. And so many of us are trapped in this law. If you're not content with what you have now, you won't be content with what you get later. True? Some of us have vehicles. And we may have bought that vehicle a few years ago, and we were excited to have that vehicle. But after a few years, you know, the car companies come up with a cooler design and that feature, and it talks to you, and it puts on the brakes for you because you don't know how to put on the brakes. Um, you know, it thinks for you. It, pretty soon, it's going to drive for you. And, and, and so we bought this car a couple years ago, and we were psyched to have that car. But now, oh, geez, it's just it's like a few years old. It doesn't have the bell or the whistle. And boy, that car would be nice. That car's a better design. If we're not content with the car we have... In a few years, you're not going to be content with the car you get. If we're not content with the house we have for whatever reason, and we buy another house maybe that we can't even afford after a few years, we're not going to be content with that either. If we're not content with the job we have, we're not going to be content with the next one. If we're not content with the wife we have or the husband we have, we're not going to be content with the next one. I mean, that's just the law of materialism. But it's our system. Our system is built on the next thing, the next thing, the newer thing, the new style of clothes, of cars, of houses, of gizmos and gadgets and and this stuff, right? It's just a a rat race of never-ending discontent. James is saying disconnect from discontent. Be content with what you have. Get our hearts aligned with the heart of God. Start having our desires and, and our affections not just placed on us but on other people. Start using our resources not just for us but for other people and watch a beautiful life emerge. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your love and generosity towards us. Thank you that you showed us the fullness of your love by the giving of your son, Jesus Christ. Came from heaven in the fullness of divinity and the fullness of humanity and he loved selflessly. Jesus Christ put his efforts and attention towards others, especially to those who were poor, disenfranchised, marginalized, rejected, labeled sinners. He gave himself to those who were in need, showing the full heart of God, our Heavenly Father. And he laid down his life for us, bearing our sin and shame, our failures upon himself, dying for those things so that we could be forgiven, taking the suffering of the world upon himself in full, And then on the third day, rising again from the dead to bring new and eternal life to us, to bring forgiveness where there is brokenness and failure, to bring restoration where there is darkness and brokenness in all the world, 
and setting us on a course to make this world look very much like heaven. And God, in order for us to do that, in order for us to align our hearts with your heart, we need to be selfless. We need to stop putting all of our desires and attention on us. That is hedonism. We need to stop putting all of our resources in our direction. That's a form of, a, of adultery, James says. Help us over time, patiently, sometimes slowly, to get our hearts aligned with yours so that we might shine the very light of Jesus Christ to a world, so much of which is in darkness. That we would especially reach out to those who are suffering, those who are poor and disenfranchised, voiceless and powerless, those who are minorities, refugees, immigrants, those who are slandered, alone, sick, mentally ill, homeless. God, we pray that we would show a unique light to those folks, the very people that Jesus came to seek, forgive, save, restore, redeem, and renew. Would we advance the cause of Christ locally and globally in such a way that the world will know your love for them because they see your love in us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.